The Tom Woods Show, episode 1125. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, Bob Murphy and I are doing it again. Contra Cruise 2018. You know you want to join us. You've seen how much fun it is. Everybody who's joined us absolutely raves about it. It is the vacation of a lifetime. Check it out at ContraCruise.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here talking to Bob Murphy today. Bob, of course, is my co-host on the Contra Krugman podcast over at ContraKrugman.com. But he has credentials other than just that. Of course, he is the author of numerous books, including The Politically Incorrect Guide to Capitalism, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Great Depression, and The New Deal, an excellent distillation of the work of Ludwig von Mises, particularly his book Human Action, called Choice, Cooperation, Enterprise, and Human Action. Most recently, The Case for IBC, How to Secede from Our Current Monetary Regime, one household at a time. He holds a PhD in economics from NYU. And we're going to talk today about the Coase theorem in particular, because that is a topic I think listeners ought to know about. It is a widely, widely discussed topic in the economics literature. And in talking about it, we can get in some ways to the bottom of some of the differences between the Austrian School of Economics, which we support on this podcast, and the Chicago and even just mainstream economics. Because here we're going to be talking about efficiency and economic efficiency and optimal outcomes and what this all means and if it's correct to think this way. And we want to try to portray the other side as as accurately as we can. We don't want to make a straw man out of it. But I hope you'll find this discussion of the Coase theorem uh, engaging. It's it's important, as I say, it is widely cited in the literature of the article that first laid it out. And when you explore it, you are really digging deep into the foundations of economic thinking. And here we're going to see, as I say, parts of economics where we diverge from others and we diverge in very important ways and in ways that I think are likely to attract people to our side when they hear the, the differences. But anyway, point is, let's talk about the Coase Theorem with Bob Murphy. Bob, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Tom. Been a while since I've had you on the old Tom Woods show. I don't know how long, but uh, I talk to you all the time over at Contra Krugman, and I know people who listen to this show also listen to Contra Krugman at ContraKrugman.com, and I know they also are going to be joining us on the Contra Cruise this year. I mean, for heaven's sake, this is the third one. At some point, you got to say, look, you know, come what may, I am getting on that thing. It is the greatest, most fun thing in the world. I mean, we sailed with Dave Smith and all these awesome people for a week, and we all stayed up late and just had a blast and caused problems and enjoyed each other's company and played games. And we even learned a little stuff. But anyway, it's a whole lot of fun. If I may say, I think there are a lot of people who have never been on a cruise and, in fact, might think the idea of a cruise is kind of silly. I was a person like that once. And I thought, well, gee, if I'm going to go to Acapulco or something, I'm just going to fly there and be there. Why would I waste time being on a ship? You really don't know what you're talking about. Okay, I understand where you're coming from because I thought the same thing. But really, if you've never been on a cruise, the best opening cruise to go on is the Contra Cruise because you're going to be with a bunch of people who think like you do. It's, it's just so much fun. Yeah. And of course, all the, you know, other than the excursions on shore, all the fun things you're going to do 
are within walking distance. Could you imagine coordinating with 150 people to go do, you know, all of whom are great friends of yours. They'll be instant friends as soon as you meet them. But how the heck, what are we going to ride around in some kind of beat up third world bus? That's not going to happen. No, no, no. Just walk down here. Here's your stand up comedy with Dave Smith. Here's your music. Here's your, uh, you know, the special. I mean, we play family feud with libertarian questions. That's just a blast. Come on. Now. We call it freedom feud. We do indeed. Yes. The nerds among us yes. call it that. Alliteration. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, anyway. The U.S. border. <laughs> that's at ContraCruise.com. Let's talk about the Coase theorem because we're talking about stuff related <laughs> to your. That's a good segue. Yeah, I know. That's not, that was no segue at all. The only thing I have to segue into is the cruise. Everything else can be ham handed. Well, in particular, we're focusing on topics that happen to be covered in your History of Economic Thought courses over at libertyclassroom.com. So these are topics people ought to know about because they're very important. The Coase Theorem, I don't know how many times the Problem of Social Cost article has been cited, but apparently it's you know, certainly more than any of my articles have been cited. Let's just say that. Probably you and me put together, Bob. I, yeah, I would I even venture so. to say that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> anyway, Ronald I mean, Coase. We have to use scientific notation at that point to keep track of it, but still. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's Two right. gigantic numbers. So <laughs> Ronald Coase, I think he, he actually didn't die all that long ago. He lived to be a to a ripe old age. I don't remember exactly what it was, but... But my goodness, uh, a lot of these economists live very long lives. He wrote this very, very influential article, and it has provoked some controversy. And certainly among Austrians, there's been some controversy. So we're going to start with that, and then we'll say a little something about so-called public choice, which is something else you should be familiar with if you're interested in market economics and or libertarianism. So tell me about the Coase article and what problem was he purporting to solve in that article. Sure. So some of the backdrop here that we need to know is the way economists traditionally dealt with and still to this day deal with what are called externalities. And so in particular, let's talk about negative externalities. So the idea here is uh, most economists, if things are voluntary and what you're doing, what you're exchanging doesn't really have a big impact on other parties besides the two in the exchange. Most economists would agree, yeah, okay, as a default, that's probably okay to let them go ahead and do that. Now, even there, if it talks about inequality and so on, but most people are okay with that. So the way that economists would justify government intervention and to say that actually the market outcome is suboptimal is if there are what's called externalities, in particular negative externalities. So, you know, classic ex example, something like the factories making television sets, but in so doing, it's pumping pollution into the air. And so it, the question of the, you know, the price of the TV is not fully reflecting the full what's called social costs of, of TV production. It's not fully accounting for the fact that workers got to put in labor hours at the factory. You got to use the various inputs to build the thing. But the fact that people around the world are now you know, being subjected to more air pollution, that's not being reflected in the, in the market price. And so there's too many TVs being produced. So the standard way economists would deal with that is they say, oh, OK, well, in principle, if the government levied the correctly sized tax on TV production, then that would what's called internalize the externalities. 
right? So the idea is it, it's not, you know, they're, they're economists. They're not just like, oh my gosh, pollution's bad. The optimal on pollution is zero. Therefore, ban TV production. They, they don't say that. They say, no, it's just too many TVs are being produced if the owner of the factory is not taking fully into account the pollution that it's causing. So if the government levies, whatever, a dollar per te- television uh, tax, then the person, the factory owner will cut back a little bit. Prices of TVs will be higher. So consumers will realize how, you know, exactly what it, what pain it's imposing on the rest of humanity if they buy one more television set. And so that's supposed to lead back towards the optimal outcome. So that was the baseline. That was the way economists thought about it. And then Ronald Coase comes along. His article was published in 1960 called The Problem of Social Cost. And what he was trying to say is this is the, it's wrong to look at it as there's one party that's the aggressor, let's say, and then there's the other side that's the victim. He was saying, no, it's just a matter of, he, what he said is there's a, the reciprocal nature of the problem. And that, for, with our example, it's not so much that, oh, there's a factory putting uh, pollutant into the air and that's going to hurt everybody else. It's more just that, hey, there's competing uses for the air. And that, you know, if there, if there were no one living near the factory and we're just talking about local air pollution, then there wouldn't be an issue. So from the factory owner's point of view, the fact that there are so many people living right around him, that impedes his ability to make TVs. And so Coase is just saying there was an issue there of of competing uses for this scarce resource. And if that and that's the way he tried to reframe it. So what kind of a result do we get from Coase that would be different from what we would have gotten before? Okay, like, so, let's take a typical case of the it's the old train emitting the sparks in the old old timey trains. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, uh, and that's probably good switching to that example because the TV factory making pollution it's it's harder to think about conceptually. So yeah, good good example or good strategy. Tom Coase's actual paper deals with that. So he's he's imagining a train going by uh, f- some some farmland and the train kicks off sparks. And the idea is if the if the farmers plant too near the tracks, then you know some of the crops going to get burned. And so again, the under the standard framework, it would have said, "Oh, well, gee, this train's causing a negative externality on the crop production, and so we got to levy a tax on you know people shipping stuff through with trains or something like that." So what Coase said is that no, that's not necessarily the right thing to do. He said no. So first of all, he goes walks through this analysis that says if transact if we neglect transaction costs then notice the efficient outcome is going to happen whether the train, you know, the person running the train has the legal right to emit sparks and it's the responsibility of the farmers to then just take that as a given and plant accordingly or whether the legal liability is the other way around and it's the farmers have the right to be free from sparks falling onto their crops and therefore the, you know, the train owner needs to take that into account. Because either way, you know, Coase comes up with some hypothetical numbers just to make the point. But he the the insight is to say if it really does maximize total production value for the train to keep going and emitting sparks. Like in other words, if if it would be more expensive for the train to like install equipment to catch the sparks or to just stop running altogether, rather than just you know not plant within a hundred yards of the train. Then you know it's the the train owner if he has the if it's his legal responsibility to to stop it he would just make a side payment to the farmers and say look I know legally you have the right to get an injunction and stop me but here let me just pay you on the side and let me keep shooting sparks off and then you just don't plant you know within a hundred yards of the train or whatever the number is 
And so if that's the right thing to do, if that maximizes profits, that's what will happen, that the train will keep running and the, the farmers will just won't plant near it or vice versa. If um, if the train has the right, of course, to emit sparks, then the farmers aren't going to make a side payment to pay the train to stop doing it because it wouldn't be worth it. It'll be cheaper for the farmers just to not plant near the near the tracks. So Close's point is that if, if the train owner could make side deals with all the farmers that are you know located along these tracks according to or across its whole length then if it's the right thing to do if it's if it's the most profitable thing to do for the train to keep running that's what's going to happen regardless of which party has the legal right and so Coase's point was we don't like economists have traditionally thought perhaps that the the property rights were going to be assigned in a certain way and then the government had to come in and try to maybe augment that to make it complete with a tax. And he was saying, no, actually, in a baseline case where parties can freely negotiate, all that's going to happen is one party might be richer or poorer based on the side payment. But we don't need to worry about efficiency in the macro sense, that the right profitable thing to do is going to happen in that baseline case. And so that you know, so that's the bulk of his analysis, and that's what most people think of is what Coase's contribution was. Um, can we get into, Tom, the the issue of like why, what the, the misunderstanding is? Yeah, please, because um, is there any misunderstanding even on our side of things when looking at what Coase is saying? Y- yes, there is. It's, it's, so both friends and foes, I think, get this wrong. And Coase himself complained about this years after you know publishing this famous paper uh, that he was saying a lot of people misunderstand what he was trying to say there. So... A lot of people think that what Coase's point was, was to say, hey, we don't need all this regulation. We don't need to tax polluters. We don't need to tax people who are causing negative externalities because don't worry, transaction costs are pretty low in the real world. And so people will just make side payments and take care of it. And that's not what Coase was saying. Right. So, again, his critics think he's, you know, would, would might accuse him of saying that and say that's stupid. But a lot of times his friends also think that, oh, that's what Coase was getting at, and they might try to say, ah, as Coase showed, you know, we don't need to worry about these problems. So that, that wasn't what he was doing. His point was to just first set up this, this baseline case and showing if there were sufficiently low transaction costs, notice it wouldn't matter how we assign property rights so long as they were delineated and, you know, and, and there was a strict rule that everybody understood. So the, the government, in his view, needed to define property rights, but it really didn't matter so much as to which party got what particular right. Right. So in other words, whether or not it, it's the case that we we assign the right, we say that it's the train that has the right to emit the sparks, or it's the farmer who has the right to be free from the sparks, his point is you can choose one of those, but the actual outcome that's going to occur, interestingly enough, will be the same in both cases. Now, back up just a minute. I don't want to assume people know what transactions costs are. This is one of these terms you economists throw around like normal people use this term every day. We actually don't. So when you say, assuming there, you know, there are low transactions costs, what in heaven's name are you talking about? Well, in Explain our, yourself. Yeah. In our defense, mostly we're just friends with each other, so we have no yeah, that's, idea that That's regular, a little yeah. bit of the problem, yeah. yeah. So um, it's a transaction cost. What it means is... It's not like you're going and buying labor or you're but you're buying steel or something to to put into the thing you're making. A transaction cost is more like the cost of you negotiating contracts with people. So it's it, it's if it's an example of um, another one is like if there's a, a a rock band that's practicing in a studio and then right next door 
there's an ear doctor who's, who's giving hearing tests to people, there's going to be some conflict there. And so that might be an application of the Coase theorem. And you'd say, yeah, it's not that hard for one party to say to the other, hey, let me buy you out. That, you know, I really can't have you practicing your rock music next door here when I'm trying to give ear, ear tests over here. And so let me just make a side payment to you to get you to walk away and we'll get somebody else to come in here. Or vice versa, if the rock band, you know, pays the, the ear doctor off and say, look, can't you just go somewhere else? Because this, you know, we need to practice. So there, there's just one negotiation needs to happen. Whereas if it's the train owner who has to negotiate with 100 different farmers, let's say, who own the plots of land, that gets more problematic. Or if it's my original example of the factory spitting pollution into the air and technically would have to cut deals with every homeowner, you know, within 100 miles, that gets unwieldy. So it's, it's you know, yeah, the principle's there, but in practice, the cost of, of going through all those negotiations could be prohibitive. So that's that's what we mean by transaction costs. Okay, so just to circle back though, Tom, the so the misunderstanding of Coase, you know, once we clarify what he was saying in terms of here's the baseline with low transaction costs, just a matter of defining the rights. He wasn't then saying anything goes. His his then follow up point, and it's understandable because his his article was long and it's dense reading, so you could I could see how people would miss it. But his point was then to say, so really, what judges or legislatures should do when they're defining these property rights is try to imagine what would be the outcome if transaction costs were zero or really low. And then in the real world, when transaction costs might be high, assign the property rights such that that's the outcome that happens. So like with the train thing, if we think that, yep, if the owner were allowed to negotiate with all the farmers, surely, you know, he would be paying them or they would refrain from paying him and the sparks would occur and they just wouldn't plant near the near the tracks. Then in the real world, because it's going to be prohibitive and the train owner really can't negotiate with 100 different farmers, let's just assign the legal rule saying, yes, the train has the right to incidentally shoot sparks off. That's part of what you own if you buy the land to lay down the track. You own the right to be able to shoot some sparks off. And so that, you know, that's that's where he's coming. So he's so he's not saying in the real world transaction costs, we can always assume are sufficiently low. He's saying use that hypothetical scenario to try to guess and say what would be the actual use of resources in that world with the side payments possibly happening. And then let's assign transit or let's assign property rights in the real world, thinking that that will be the outcome. Bob, is it safe to say that this article is really foundational in the subfield of law and economics? Oh, yeah, totally. Okay. All right. So I do want to – I do want to – before we critique it or anything, I do want to get into the the real-world application. Like are there judges who make reference to the Coase theorem or are there legislators who have used the Coase theorem or is this entirely abstract? So let's talk about that uh, right after we thank our sponsor. Hey, folks, if you're looking to add Bitcoin to your retirement account, BitTrust IRA helps you seamlessly and securely add cryptocurrency to your portfolio. Their team handles the entire process to make it easy. And you can download your free copy of their Cryptocurrency IRA Investor's Guide at bittrustira.com woods. That's B-I-T-T-R-U-S-T-I-R-A dot com slash woods. Or give them a call right now to learn more at 855-642-8800. That's 855-642-8800. All right, let's get into the real-world application before we critique this thing, because I want people to understand why this matters. First of all, it is, as we said, a very, very widely cited paper in which Coase outlines this theorem. But is it actually ever 
used? Is the did the thinking that's reflected in the Coase theorem actually have an influence on the way property rights are? I hate to use the word assigned because it sounds so arbitrary, but yeah, assigned is. Did it actually have any real world consequences? I think. Well, certainly the the field of law and economics. I think has has uh, influenced the way certain. If you don't like that term, what you like the term policymakers, Tom? That's a real nice bland term for oh, yeah. you that I'm <laughs> yeah, sure yeah, yeah. Makes, makes your skin crawl. Yeah. Uh, that probably makes them um, it, at least changes the language or the, when they're trying to justify what they're doing, then certainly this framework um, that Coase helped in, inspire, I think, it, it permeates it. All right. So it's it, so it's I think it would be saying too much to say the the very idea of a cost benefit analysis comes from this paper. That that's not true. That's overstating. People would have been doing that earlier. But certainly the way people think about it, um, and so I think for sure many judges were influenced by this this type of analysis. And so they again I I can't say whether like on a particular specific decision you know the. The majority opinion said, "Ah, because of Coase's paper, we're ruling such and such." But I, th- I think for sure, when um, they want to invoke economic considerations as part of the rationale for why they're ruling the way they're ruling, that yes, this this type of literature uh, comes into play. So I, I don't know if that's answering your question sufficiently. The other thing too is it it shows what what he did show in the paper, even after the part. But I just said he then goes to show why if you were relying on the traditional what's called Pagovian analysis after AC Pagu, this idea of, oh, just tax the negative externalities, that that could be that could lead you to an inefficient outcome. So just to give a quick example, suppose it really is supposed to be the case that the railroad like you would maximize total output if you want to think of it that way. If the railroad just was allowed to continue running and shoot sparks off and that the, um, the farmers just, you know, didn't plant right next to it. And that was the way that they they minimized the damages and so on. If that is the efficient outcome in the sense of maximizing the value of total output, then if instead, if the legislature just assumed that, oh, no, that's a negative externality, we're going to levy a big tax on um, emitting sparks, then the the farmers would have no incentive to not plant right next to the railroad. You know, they would they would they would keep planting the normal way, and then the railroad would cut back on the on the routes it would run, and there'd be fewer sparks. And so the point is just that that might be the wrong thing to do. That might be the wrong outcome. Or to give it an even more exaggerated example, suppose it made sense for a certain place to have a nuclear power plant, but then you really wouldn't want to have people like you know we wouldn't have a daycare center one block away or something just because of the risk. And then, you know, it might just make sense. No, it's not hard to move the daycare center further away to minimize the risk of something happening, you know, to the kids. And then you get to have the cheap nuclear power. Whereas if you've instead just assumed, oh, no, you levied this enormous tax on the nuclear plant to account for the fact that, oh, there's a daycare center right there, then they might not just build the plant in the first place. Okay, so there's things like that where you can come up with with sort of exaggerated examples showing that this Pagovian framework is could could lead to a suboptimal outcome, whereas maybe the right thing to do is just to you know sort of change the game, if you will, and have one party kind of just change what they're doing so that this conflict doesn't exist. Let's talk now about uh, critiques of the Coase theorem, and I'd be curious to know what you think any problems with it might be. I'm familiar with some Austrian criticisms of it, but I'm not familiar with the Murphy view of it. <laughs> okay, well, 
I mean, I guess part of it, part of the problem is just the fact that it takes so long to get everyone to see what he was saying. Um, I think that indicates that perhaps he could have been clear in his, his original paper. Cause again, it's, you can sit there and try to read the thing and it's, it's not obvious what he was trying to say. And so just in terms of the exposition, I think there's that element in, in fairness, he was trying to overturn this real conventional way of thinking. And so that, that might've been part of the problem. Um, I agree with guys like Walter block that there's, it's not so much that I have a problem with anything Coase says in his paper, but the broader law and economics tradition that came out of that, it is, it is kind of creepy. And I think it almost is circular in a sense. And so just to, I'm going to be a little bit unfair here and exaggerate, but I just want to make sure your listeners get the idea. Strictly speaking, if what we're going to say is, Oh, we should assign property rights based on what maximizes wealth. And you know, that is a, a fair statement, a crude way of putting it. Strictly speaking, then, like if if some mugger takes a lady's purse, and then the, you know, and she wants to sue the mugger, and it goes before the judge, you know, he would have to weigh and say, well, the, you know, d- does the mugger value the contents of that purse more than the lady does? Now, you might come up with the quote right answer by saying, well, no, she has a sentimental value, and if there's a hundred dollar bill in there, they both value the hundred dollar bill at a hundred dollars, and so plus her sentimental value, you know, she values the purse more than the mugger does, and so she should get the property right. But isn't that kind of a weird thing that we have to run through that exercise as opposed to just saying, well, no, people own stuff and we have some theory by which we delineate property rights. And, yeah, if it comes to something new like radio spectrum or something, maybe we got to come up with some way of. But clearly to say, like, I own this house, does it really you know, does it make sense to say that that ownership should flow from considerations of maximizing the value of output? Or is it more like, well, no, you, you own it for some other reasons about the nature of property rights? So I, I think that there's that element. And if for no other reason, it sort of blows itself up that if you thought your property rights were always going to be subject to a review to make sure it's maximizing production value, then you would be you wouldn't be securing your property rights. And so and so I, I think there's that, that sort of an element there, it's just sort of like, you know, the, my problem with crude utilitarianism. That if you, if everyone really were just doing that, and you thought your neighbor was refraining from murdering you in your sleep just because he was running, you know, <laughs> arithmetic problems at night, and saying no, no, actually, I, I think it's uh, it's going to maximize social welfare or social utility if I if I don't kill him tonight, like th- that would not be a very good outcome. So, is it a case of they're smuggling in an ethical assumption, or is it more a matter of if then if you want to maximize? utility, then you should follow the following thing. But since we all know everybody wants to maximize utility, then unless you're completely crazy, we should follow this rule. That's a good question. <laughs> I was going to say either either that was the dumbest question in the world or I've done the impossible here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be polite and let you down easy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, that was a really tricky question for me to answer, Tom. <laughs> I'm tr- I'm just trying to remember the actual language that Coach used in his paper. So uh, let me say this. That is kind of sure. a subtle, but that is kind yeah. of a subtle question. I mean, I I guess our point of view, if I'm speaking for Austrians, our point of view really would be we make more or less if-then statements. I mean, we we don't say the Aust- people say, what's the Austrian position on the minimum wage? Well, there is no well, first of all, I don't know. I'm not even sure there is an Austrian position on wages necessarily. But anyway, is there's no Austrian view because that's a policy question. What we can tell you is if you do X, then Y is is going to occur. Or you're going to get more Y than you would have if you hadn't implemented X. 
And that's as far as we go. Whereas sometimes with the Chicago people, you get the feeling that although probably they would protest that they're being value-free, when push comes to shove, it sure sounds like they're imposing a utilitarian worldview on on the discipline. Yeah. So for most of Coase's paper, yeah, it's not like, I don't think you could point to anything and then I would say, oh yeah, I think that's a demonstrably false statement. So, th- so that's certainly true. So in that sense, it's neutral. And he's just saying, well, if we assume this, then this would happen. But you're right. I, you know, when people say, so what is Coase saying? What, you know, what is, what is the conclusion that pops out of that? And look, what I said to you earlier, I think is, is defensible. And a lot of Coase scholars would, would agree is to say, yeah, he was saying, okay, if you want to use this to guide, you know, decision making, then it means that when the judge should assign the property rights in a, in a case where there's high transaction costs such that he thinks the actual outcome there will mimic the outcome that would happen regardless of the assignment in a low transaction cost scenario. And so there he is, you know, that, that is a normative statement. He's saying, this is what the policymaker should do. And, and I, so yes, I think you're right that they are assuming that the reader agrees. Why would we ever tolerate an outcome that was inefficient? Why wouldn't we want to boost the total value? Because even if there are losers in in principle, we could compensate them with the gains to the winners. Now it may sound like a trivial objection, but couldn't you say that, that uh, you can't really quantify the value that somebody gets from something precisely for the, one of the reasons you mentioned. How can you quantify sentimental value? That land that the farmer enjoys could be valued by him at an amount that no judge would be willing to sign off on, but so what? It, it, it is valued by the farmer at that amount. So it seems arbitrary to say that we could say one party values it more than another. How can you know that? How can you judge the intensity of somebody's valuing of something. Now, it seems like that has to be something he anticipated, so I feel silly even raising it. Well, right, and in this literature in general, I mean, there's also the problem of, depending on who gets assigned the property right, that person's wealthier, and so they have a higher ability to pay for things. So their, you know, their willingness to pay for an outcome is augmented if they get assigned the property right in the first place. So with a lot of these things, it if we're assuming the assignment of the property is some trivial little matter that doesn't really greatly affect everybody's wealth, then, you know, it kind of, it seems pretty straightforward, but if you really realize, you know, in the extreme case, well, gee, with sufficiently low transaction costs, it doesn't matter whether this group of people owns their bodies or not, because if the right thing to do is for them to be free, they would just make side payments to buy their own, you know, freedom. But, you know, like that's kind of a big, a big thing. (laughs) That's like some trivial detail. And so, um, so I I agree with you, and this you're right. This has been well discussed in the literature, but but still, I th- I think it's you know the fact that critics have raised it and the Kosians have responded, I don't think means that it's a silly objection. So they're yes, they're they're well aware of these issues, and again, it's I think when you're asking me what's my view, I'm glad he wrote the paper, and I think it's it certainly helps to show what the problem is with the conventional negative externality. Oh, so therefore let's let, have the government levy a tax. I think it's good to show that that logic isn't even right on its own terms. Because a lot of times, if someone wants to you know, push back against that, they'll just raise questions like, oh, well, maybe the government gets the tax wrong, or how can we trust them? They might make the tax too high you know, just to raise revenue and blah, blah, blah. And that's all fine, but I like Coase's perspective because he's showing even in principle that could be the wrong thing to do on your own terms because Pagu also was just worried about you know, Pareto efficiency. But... Um, you're right that it's it is kind of creepy and, and ultimately, you know, just as that 
if you think the property rights, you know, come from something besides just pure considerations of uh, efficacy, then then yeah, that's that is creepy among other. So to answer your question, I think in terms of neutral economic analysis, it's fine as so far as it goes. But yes, if actual real world judges are using this thing. It, I think it could could have some bad consequences if for no other reason that they could easily say, oh, well, yeah, the, the government has the right to take your property to build a highway and we'll compensate you and blah, blah, blah. We're maximizing. You're right. If, if the person doesn't have the right to say, well, no, but I actually valued my land more than what you just paid me, then, you know, how, how are you supposed to prove the person wrong? And I think also, by the way, this whole episode is a useful reminder. I don't mean this podcast episode. I mean, this episode in the history of thought is a useful reminder to people who would accuse the Austrians of believing that, and it's, it's by people who don't know anything about the Austrians, but people who accuse the Austrian school or all free market economists of thinking only in terms of efficiency, well, then why would we be pushing back against some aspects of the way the Coase theorem is applied? Well, why, would we, why wouldn't we be just blandly cheering it? Because we don't like that way of thinking either. So anyway, what we'll do is on the show notes page, I'll link to the article by Coase. We'll link, to, I assume it's got to be, I mean, for heaven's sake, it's got to be available online. Yeah. Uh, pr- problem of social costs. So we'll link to that and uh, maybe link to a couple of free market critiques that are valuable. I can think of a couple off the top of my head and anything else Bob thinks is useful. Of course, you should check Bob out at consultingbyrpm.com. His blog there is really, really great. So by all means, do that. And of course, read Bob's books and all that. You can find them at consultingbyrpm.com. And plug Liberty Classroom while you're well, at it. I was just about to. Oh, jeez. <laughs> you know what? I, who am I? What, what, who is it? <laughs> but, but I think it's, I feel funny wording it this way, but more than going to visit Bob, <laughs> go check okay. out libertyclassroom.com where you can learn from Bob and actually ask him questions and get answers from him. How about that? All right. That's it, Bob. Thanks so much for talking to us. All right, thanks. Glad to be here. All right, folks, before I let you go, how's this for a website created by a listener of this show? JeffersonianLibertarian.com, and it describes itself this way. It's a site for ideas about liberty and also how to obtain and maintain financial freedom. Our aim is to point out fallacies and outright lies spread through government-controlled compulsory schooling, which are supported by the mainstream media, academia, and the political establishment, but also... As the late Harry Brown said, we want to help our fellow Americans live free in an unfree world. So you're going to get two different sides of the coin, the politics and the financial freedom. Interesting and important stuff over at JeffersonianLibertarian.com. So help out a listener of the show by giving that site a chance. I guarantee you'll walk away with some valuable and actionable content. JeffersonianLibertarian.com. I'll link to that at TomWoods.com slash 1125. Get yourself some free publicity and my neat bonuses when you get your hosting through my link. Check out all those nice bonuses and how to get them at tomwoods.com slash publicity. Tomorrow, it's private cities. All right, we'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.